0: You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from discipleship director Johnny Bell. Good morning, everybody. The title of this sermon is officially Renewing Formation, or could be known by Gare's preferred title when he planned out this series a community that doesn't just believe in Jesus but follows and becomes like Jesus by following the lifestyle and practices of Jesus. Or, by my preferred title, Fisherman, Beasts of Burden, Carpentry, Swiss Cheese Plants, and Michelangelo. If you're taking notes, write this down. This will make sense later. Begin in the Gospel of Matthew Chapter 28, he records the final words of Jesus. He says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to live how I've taught you to live. These are the last recorded words of Jesus in the Bible before he ascends to heaven. His final instructions, the Great Commission. They are really clear. Go and make disciples. Not go and convince people to say some words so they can go to heaven one day. Not raise up an army, not to create a Christian nation, not to create a political or legal system, or build an empire and enforce the morality of that empire upon the masses. (laughs) Tension in the room. The instruction is this. Go person to person and invite them into an apprenticeship into the way of Jesus. To make a disciple is to invite a person into an apprenticeship, to a lifelong journey of learning how to live with Jesus and live out the way of Jesus. It is the formation of your life around the person of Jesus. So how come followers of Jesus look and act so differently to the person of Jesus of Nazareth that we read about in the Bible? What has happened in the world of discipleship, spiritual formation, apprenticeship to Jesus? Because something has gone drastically wrong. There's a famous quote, often attributed to Gandhi. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. Although he probably never said it. It It's probably a misquote. It's falsely attributed to him. But I did the research and found out that most likely the Indian philosopher Baradada actually said the quote, and I actually like how he said it better. Jesus is ideal and wonderful, but you Christians, you are not like him. A scathing review. Regardless of where the quote originated, the lesson rings true. In a 2022 survey... It was found from 1,200 people polled that the behavior of Christians was a bigger obstacle to being a Christian than any theological dispute. More than wrestling with the problem of evil, more than debates around a creation narrative, more than the plausibility of God, the concept of heaven and hell, the bigger problem was man, these Christians are the worst. We have a crisis in disciple making. Apparently, we have lost the art of being transformed into recognizable disciples and apprentices of our Rabbi Jesus of Nazareth. I was watching a TV show recently, and a character started quoting scripture, and I knew this guy's evil. Like, this guy's going to be the worst guy in the show. Now, part of that might be a Hollywood agenda against Christians that doesn't actually represent what we're actually like he was a cannibal in the show also, so it's a little, you know. But man, how far have we gone that you could watch a Christian on a fictional show and go, I bet he's evil. The opposite of what we're supposed to be. How far off did we get? In the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, recorded in Scripture in chapter 12, he gives us a beautiful description of what it means to live the life of a disciple of Jesus. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. There is a transformation that is supposed to happen, that is supposed to take place, a metamorphosis from the inside out to become more like our Rabbi Jesus. There is a warning not to be conformed to the pattern of the world. In other words, the world and all its ideas is forming you one way, and you are called to resist and instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind into the radically generous, enemy-loving, enduringly faithful, self-sacrificial, grateful, graceful, patient, and exceedingly joyful apprentices of Jesus. However, I think in our attempt to be different from the world and not conform to it, we have earnestly swung the other way, into being conformed to a pattern of cultural Christianity that might be just as problematic as being conformed to the pattern of the world. Where the worldview of secular culture is forming us one way, a way I do not want to go, towards worship of self, fluid truth, and hedonism without consequence, there is this weird subculture that has formed of cultural Western Christianity or church culture that I find just as problematic maybe not in his obviously sinful ways, but problematic in that it does not resemble Jesus. I don't know about you, but I have felt this struggle on a personal level. Growing up, I was lucky enough to be raised by Christian parents in England, and I encountered the love and reality of Jesus at an early age. My parents are Doctors by profession, psychiatrists, but they led a house church in all their spare time with four children. And, and it, we met in living rooms and I saw God was real. I saw him heal people with no fanfare or fluff, with the words of songs projected onto the wall of our living room from like an overhead print. You ever use them? I knew that Jesus was real. The problem I had wasn't Jesus. It was that the Christians I knew Were so depressingly dull and joyless that I did not want to be a part of it. There were always exceptions to that rule, my parents being one of them. But what I found overwhelmingly was the the non-Christian was being more fun. 2007, the age of 18, I moved to America to really give this Jesus thing another shot. Jesus got more and more compelling. And the Christian culture got weirder and weirder. <laughs> I eventually went to college in Oklahoma. I love Oklahoma. I love churches in Oklahoma. I love a lot of the people in Oklahoma. But in Oklahoma, going to college, in a Christian school, started to ask my friends about growing up in the church. And the Christians I talked to, they weren't allowed to watch good movies they weren't allowed to listen to good music. Have you, ever been, if you, you know you are raised in the church, right, in the early 2000s or 90s. If you know the posters that go on the wall that say, if you like this music, try listening to this Christian band instead. Right, like, you like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, try DC Talk. And then you listen to DC Talk and you go, wow, this is not the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> they would do, if you've ever sent clan CD into a fire at church, this sermon is for you. If you've ever had the, the Harry Potter buyback program at church, where you have to like, I, I, did, I could, I what is going on? You're not allowed to dance. When you hug girls, you have to hug them from the side like a crab. Like I don't, I don't. Like make room for Jesus. If you know these phrases, you know you grew up in church, man. Uh, boys are blue and girls are red, don't make purple, like this was, man, Jesus was more and more compelling, but once again, I was confronted with this, I love Jesus, but what in the Stephen Curtis Chapman is going on in the church? (laughs) Robert Mulholland describes this well in his seminal book on formation, an invitation to a journey. He says, the Christian community, which should have been a clear voice of liberation and wholeness in the wilderness of human bondage and brokenness, has too often been merely an echo of the culture, further confusing those on a wandering and haphazard quest for wholeness. A multitude of Christian gurus have emerged who promise their followers life, liberty, and the perfection of happiness. Superficial pop spiritualities abound, promising heaven on earth, but producing only failure and frustration for those genuinely hungering and thirsting for God. Christians, man. I felt very much like an outcast in Christian culture. The more and more I learned about Jesus, the less and less I saw him reflected in a lot of what I would call cultural Christianity. Disclaimer. The purpose of this sermon right now is not to self-righteously look down at any of this. That just creates another weird subculture where we're the jerks. I know many wonderful Christians. I know the earnest heart behind Christian subculture, but I've personally found a lot of it to be harming in my relationship to Jesus, which is why I'm committed to this idea that discipleship is not formation to becoming indoctrinated in Christian culture. Discipleship is formation to the person of Jesus Christ. I am not supposed to become more conformed into, into the institution that is cultural Christianity in the West, and I definitely don't think health and thriving for me is found in the ways of the world, but instead I'm supposed to be transformed to the character of Christ. This is the only standard for discipleship. It is a total commitment to the purity of the person of Jesus Christ and I will spend my life pursuing him. In the words of Robert Mulholland again, spiritual formation or discipleship is the process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. I have devoted my life to this, to try not to add anything superfluous to Jesus. He is enough. Discipleship to him and his way is undoubtedly the correct way to a life fulfilled for ourselves and a renewed society for the blessing of others. I want to establish that that is our baseline. When we talk about discipleship, formation, at vintage church, we're talking about being formed to the likeness of Christ, nothing else. So if we have a baseline, a foundation, something we can agree upon to move forward with, I want to give you five pictures, five movements, five metaphors for what we mean practically about being formed into the likeness of Jesus, the why and the how of what we are going to do, which brings us to fishermen, beasts of burden, carpentry, Swiss cheese plants, and Michelangelo. Needs a little explanation, but I'll give it a shot. Number one, fishermen, or Jesus can do your life better than you. In The Gospel of Luke chapter 5, we get this account of Jesus calling his first disciples. When he had finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, put your boat out into the deeper part and let down your nets for a catch. Master, replied Simon, we were working hard all night and caught nothing at all but if you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they did so, they caught such a huge number of fish that their nets began to break. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. So they came and filled both the boats, and they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. Go away, he said. Leave me, Lord, for I am a sinner. He and all his companions were gripped with amazement at the catch of fish they had taken. This included James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Don't be afraid, said Jesus to Simon. From now on, you'll be catching people or you'll be fishing for people. They brought the boats into land and then they abandoned everything and followed him. These men are fishermen. They're apprentices to their fathers who are fishermen. Their whole life is planned out for them. They will learn from their fathers how to be fishermen. They will inherit the family business and they will train their sons to be fishermen. That's their life, catching fish. Jesus rolls up a rabbi and he invites them to apprentice under him instead and calls them to something greater. I will make you fishers of men. And to prove he knows what he's talking about, He catches more fish than they've ever caught in their lives. Here's what we learn. Whatever you are doing in your life, Jesus can do your life better than you. He is a better fisherman than the fisherman. Why would I apprentice under Jesus? Because when it comes to living a human life, he is the best to ever do it. We each have our lives to live, to manage, to succeed in. We have jobs and marriages, children we're parenting, the complex dating landscape of Los Angeles in 2023 to navigate. We have stressful workplaces, in-laws, tense relationships with our stepdads. The humbling reality is we're all stumbling our way through it. In apprenticeship to Jesus, I get access to the only person to ever live a life perfectly. And if he were living my life, he would without doubt be doing it better. He'd be a better husband, he'd be a better father to my kids, he'd be a more patient son-in-law, he'd be a kinder and more gracious friend, and Lord knows if he was gracious preaching today, he'd be doing a better job. (laughs) Jesus can do my life better than me. He can do your life better than you. When Michael Jordan offers to teach you how to improve your jumper, you listen. When Jesus offers to teach you how to live, you start taking notes. I saw this play out very beautifully in my first year living in America. I was 18 years old, I was a youth ministry intern, and I was living with the youth pastor and his wife that were mentoring and discipling and forming me. I was cooking eggs in the morning, they were out of the house, <clears throat> and I'm standing next to the fridge and there is a love letter from Chris to Kelsey, magneted to the fridge. I'm reading that letter. You put it on the fridge, I'm reading it. What I read was so remarkably beautiful that it shaped the way I view discipleship forever. I'm paraphrasing because I didn't write it down, but my best recollection of the words that Chris wrote to his wife were this Kelsey, I am not able to love you to the level that you deserve but Jesus is. So I will devote my life to spending more time with Jesus and learning from him so that I can learn how to love you well. Come on. I mean, you're just crying, making eggs, reading a letter on the fridge. They don't even know, but the life that Chris and Kelsey, well, they know because they know I've told them, but they didn't know at the time, just the life they were living was impacting me. It shapes the way I do my marriage, Shapes the way I pursue Jesus, and it extrapolates out to every part of my life. I go, darn it, I need to get closer to Jesus, because he knows how to do this better than I do. Here's the best part, though Jesus doesn't just show these fishermen that he can fish better than they can, give them a few tips, and leave them to the life they had before. He calls them to a higher level of living. He raises the ceiling of their lives and invites them into a greater mission. The invitation is true for us. Are you a hedge fund, hedge fund manager, student, real estate developer, teacher, stay-at-home parent? Not only will Jesus pour himself into that area of your life, he will elevate your vision. Instead of building your own little kingdom, building your own wealth, getting your degree, enhancing your portfolio. Getting the kids to bed without a meltdown, Jesus invites you to do your life in partnership with his mission. That through you, not only can you do those things, but the world might be reached, the poor might be blessed, the lost might be found, and the broken might be healed. Discipleship under Jesus is to take the mundane working class fishermen moms, dads, students, teachers, businessmen, and women, and invite us into the divine, the world-changing, and the miraculous. This is apprenticeship under Jesus. Number two, beasts of burden, or Jesus carries the load. Life is hard, and I think the older I get, the better at life I get. And life gets harder, perfectly in line to match it. <laughs> Apprenticeship to Jesus has an answer to a hard life. In Matthew 11, Jesus says these famous words Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit, uh, in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So let's talk about yokes and burdens. Burdens we are familiar with. The stresses, responsibilities, worries, obligations we carry with us every single day. The burden is the part of life that might not be bad, but it is hard. We are all Beasts of burden. Like an oxen plowing a field, we drag our burdens behind us through life, and they are heavy. We are acquainted with burdens. A yoke, though. Yoke. Y-O-K-E. Not an egg. Yoke has two meanings here. A yoke was the term during this time referring to the collective teachings of a rabbi. Each rabbi had their teachings, their interpretation of the scripture, and this was called their yoke. When you study under a rabbi, you submit your life to their teachings, and you take their yoke upon you. So Jesus, when he talks about his yoke, is referring to his teaching, his worldview, his interpretation of scripture, how it applies to your life. We take Jesus' teaching, his yoke, upon us. But yoke is also a reference to another thing, to the wooden beam that connects two oxen so that they may collectively carry or pull what they are burdened with. We have a picture. In the world of farming, this is how a yoke works. You would take a weaker, younger, less mature oxen who is unable to carry the burden on their own and you yoke them That is to connect them to a more mature oxen. When you do this, the older, stronger, more mature beast of burden not only leads the way, showing the younger one where to go and how to do it, but it also carries the greater weight with regards to what they are burdened with. This is a picture of our apprenticeship to Jesus. Is life hard? Are you weary Are you heavy laden? Are you in need of rest? Apprenticeship to Jesus is to take his yoke upon you. You tie yourself to him through his teaching. And as you follow his teaching, you are put in relationship with him. Not only does he show you the way to go, but he carries the burden with you. I apprentice to Jesus because his teaching guides me keeps me on the path to life, partners me with him so I'm not in this thing by myself, and it gives me rest from carrying the burdens of life alone. Number three, carpentry. Or, Jesus has a way of doing things. Before Jesus was a rabbi, we know that his father Joseph was a carpenter. And that for a lot of Jesus' life, he wasn't known as a rabbi, but he was known as a carpenter. So let's picture Jesus as a carpenter together. And what if we were apprenticing under Jesus in carpentry? What would we do? We would go into the carpentry shop. We would follow the carpenter around. We would learn the physical skills, techniques, philosophies, and tools of carpentry. And at first, we would be really bad at it. We'd watch the carpenter make things and we'd ask questions and we'd scurry around after him, helping where we could, absorbing everything about carpentry because he's the master craftsman and we are novices and one day we want to be able to do what he does. And if Jesus was a carpenter, he would have a way of doing carpentry and he would teach us to do things his way, his way. And when we do the things he did, first we'll be eager but pretty useless at them. We'll try our best. But as we go in our apprenticeship to the carpenter, we would become competent carpenters and maybe even masters ourselves. We would be recognizable to others as having trained under that particular carpenter because we would be doing things the way he taught us to do them. This is how it is with Jesus and us now. Jesus, the rabbi, the son of God, the savior, the healer, the Messiah, has a way of doing things, and we are supposed to do things the way he says to do them. Not just the technique or methodology, but with the character of Jesus as well. We are called to do the Jesus stuff. In chapters 8 and 9 of the Gospel of of Matthew, we get a beautiful picture of this. In those chapters, chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Matthew, Jesus, there's a series of stories in a row of Jesus doing something. You get Jesus cleansing a leper, casting a demon out of a man, raising a girl from the dead, healing a blind man, and giving a mini-sermon about how the kingdom of God is good news for sinners. In Matthew 10, the very next chapter, the very next story, Jesus sends his disciples out to go and do ministry. He says to them, go to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Everything that Jesus wanted them to do, he modeled for them, showed them how to do it, and then sent them out to do the exact same thing that they had seen We get to do the stuff Jesus did in the exact same way. He models it for his disciples, and he models it for us. What's crazy to me is that I feel like the modern temptation is to hang around the carpentry shop. You sit on the workbench, swing your feet, you don't pay that much attention. We hang around the carpentry shop like it's a social club, and we don't do the stuff. We call ourselves carpenters, but we've never picked up the wood chisels or the handsaw. We sit in the shop, telling the master carpenter that we don't think his way is actually the best way anymore, because Bear 420 on TikTok said carpentry is actually a tool of the patriarchy, and we shouldn't be doing it anymore. Or we do the things the carpenter taught us, but not in the way that he taught us. We're happy to wield a hammer, but we don't do it with all the grace, and sensitivity, or nuance that Jesus taught us. Spiritual formation means we do what Jesus did. He has a way. We are followers of the way of Jesus. Where he is going, we need to go. We do the things he did. It's time for the church to get to work. We should have calloused hands and soft hearts. It's time to learn from Jesus. We should be asking of him, Jesus, what's your sex ethic? What's your standard of generosity? Jesus, how did you do hospitality? How did you pray? How did you heal the sick? Did you fast? Jesus, do you observe the Sabbath? Do you read the scriptures? How about service or humility? How did Jesus treat the poor? How did he spend his time? How did he treat women? How did he treat the elite and the outcasts and the sinners? He's our model, and we do what he did, how he did it. Number four, Swiss cheese plants. Or Jesus changes you. This is a picture of a Monstera deliciosa. It is a Swiss cheese plant I have one of these in my office. I have a couple in my house. I'm a certified plant dad. If you learn nothing else today, I can help your plants not die, all right? This plant is known as the Swiss cheese plant because it has holes in its leaves. Only it doesn't always have holes in its leaves. This plant grows, and as it grows, it matures, and as it matures, it changes. Here, you can see a picture. This is the one I have in my office. This is its leaf in this most juvenile form. It is small, it is heart-shaped, and it is solid. Stage two is it starts to grow larger leaves with splits in them. But stage three is it grows even larger leaves with more splits in them and then fenestrations, little holes in the leaves. These three different kinds of leaves look like they could be from a different plant. They look like at least like a different subspecies, but they're not. It's the same plant, it's the same DNA, and in fact that is the three different kinds of leaves growing on the exact same plant. This plant just changes as it gets more mature. Apprenticeship to Jesus is supposed to change you you will change by following him. And if you do not change and you do not continue to change, if your life does not look recognizably different over time, then we have a problem with our discipleship. Your faith is not a static destination into which you arrive. Your faith is an unfolding journey in front of you that you are invited to walk down daily. So how do we change? Well, for a plant to grow and mature, it needs several things. So we'll start there. A the plant needs light, water, soil and nutrients. It needs support. It needs the right atmosphere. That is temperature, humidity, airflow. It also needs care, pruning, and pest control. Look at these things. If your house plants are dying, I'm telling you, you gotta look at these things. Of these essential ingredients for a plant to grow and be healthy, one is more important than the others when it comes to growth light. Exposure to light sets the potential for a plant's growth. The more light it is is exposed to, the bigger and more mature it can grow. If it is not exposed to light or enough light, its ability to grow is forever capped, no matter what else you do to the plant. For some of you, you got a plant in a deep, dark corner of a room, you keep on watering it, and you're wondering why it's dying. It does not have its first essential ingredient light. Our formation journey is the same. Jesus is the light. As we are exposed, it's a cheesy analogy, I know. Jesus is the light. As we are exposed to Jesus and spend time in his presence, as we are with Jesus and exposed to him, he sets the potential for our growth. And like a plant, everything else we then do helps it achieve its growth potential. You expose a plant to a large amount of light, it sets its potential for growth. You then need to give it nutrients, water, support, the right atmosphere, and care, and those things will help it to actualize the potential that the light sets. Are you with me? With Jesus, we get in his presence. Nothing we do will help us grow if we are not in his presence. Once we have been in his presence, we need to do the stuff. Because it's when we do the stuff that we realize the potential for growth that He has set in us. Spiritual disciplines of fasting, worship, scripture reading, generosity, prayer, silence, and solitude, Sabbath, the list goes on. We cannot grow just by doing the stuff. We only grow if we have been sufficiently grow if we presence of Jesus. And then we actualize that growth by living it out. As John Mark Homer says it. The first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the spirit of Jesus. That is the baseline for all life in the kingdom of God. If you're new to the whole Jesus thing and thinking, where do I start? Start right there. When we marry together the presence of God with the practices of a disciple, we get change. Get in the presence of Jesus, then put your hands to work and watch your life transform. And finally to close, Michelangelo, or Jesus draws the beauty out of you. I have a picture of two sculptures by Michelangelo. They're part of a series of unfinished sculptures known as the prisoner sculptures, you can see why. The figures look as if they are trapped in the rock, having always existed there, but yearning to break free of their stone shackles. I find these sculptures to be fascinating because they give a clear image to a concept that Michelangelo himself talked about regarding his method of carving a sculpture out of a great chunk of rock. He said about sculpting from solid stone, in every block of marble, I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me, shaped and perfect in attitude and action. I only have to hew away the rough walls that imprison the lovely apparition to reveal it to the other eyes as mine see it. Preach. This is our final picture of spiritual formation. We should all be wary of any form of discipleship which seeks to make everybody the same. The goal of discipleship is not to create carbon copies of perfectly behaving, submissive Stepford wives bleached and stripped of our uniqueness and difference. To be conformed to the likeness of Christ is something altogether more wonderful. It is to let Jesus look at us and pull out of us what has always been there but has not always been visible. It is to strip away the rough stone the sin, the callousness, and the parts of our identity that we have become used to but should never have been there in the first place. It is to reveal the unique and beautiful masterpiece of you that has always been trapped within. Discipleship is freedom from the false self. The revelation of who God has always envisioned us to be listen to how Michelangelo talked about the creation of the statue of David. He talks about it like it's his son. I created a vision of David in my mind and simply carved away everything that was not David. How beautiful to think that your father in heaven looks at you the same way. How wonderful to take our lives in their rough and unfinished humility and put them in the hands of the Maker and let Him pull the beauty out from within and show us what we have always been in His eyes. When we are discipled to become more like Christ, because we are image bearers of God, when we become more like Christ, we become more like ourselves. What is different and unique about each of us becomes more beautifully vivid. Each of our unique traits, from the color of our skin, to the shape of our bodies, to our creativity, our silliness, our passions, our quirks, our idiosyncrasies, Each of them is celebrated in the hands of our maker and used by him as a unique manifestation of his glory. Can I get an amen? Amen. In discipleship, we become freed. Like Michelangelo's prisoner sculptures, freed from what enslaved us, what held us, what bound us, the sin that ensnared us. And slowly over time, God sets us free from everything within us that isn't supposed to be us so that we can be what he always made us to be, fully alive in him. To close, you know what the world needs? You. Healed, whole, at peace with yourself, in the hands of the master, being formed, not solely for your own benefit, but so that you can go out and be a blessing to others. Here's the invitation. Will you embrace this process? Because it all sounds pretty from up here, but rubber needs to hit the road, and that's when it gets a little hard. Will you submit your life to Jesus and say to him, form me, shape me, Strip from me everything that isn't from you. Your ways will be my ways. Your way of living will be my way of living. What you value will be what I value. What you say, I will believe. That's the invitation. Will you embrace the process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others? Will you stand with me? This afternoon as we close, as we worship together before we leave, we have a prayer ministry team and they're gonna come down to the front. Prayer ministry is open for everybody. If you have any reason to come and want and get prayer, I invite you forward this morning. But especially if ever in your life you felt like you were in love with Jesus and you were drawn to him and something that was never supposed to be there tripped you up if you've ever had to burn your favorite CD at youth group, the invitation is to come forward. If you've ever looked at the cross and found it incredibly compelling, but found like you couldn't join Jesus there because you couldn't co-sign the other stuff that was attached to it. And I don't mean theology you disagree with, I mean culture that was attached to it. I wanna invite you forward this morning. If you have felt like following Jesus is hard because other stuff is in the way, I invite you forward this morning. We also have our prayer team. Praise before the services. They got these words. If this is you, I invite you to come forward. Someone with heartbreak, breakup, divorce, or separation. Another person who came alone for the first time wondering if this church thing is for them. says here, back left side of the room. I don't know if that's stage left or house left. (laughs) You know if it's you. I invite you to come forward for prayer if you need it. We're going to worship. We're going to invite God to come into our hearts and form us into his likeness. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.